Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, August 10th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Dozens are feared dead after a migrant boat capsizes off Tunisia. China's economy slips into deflation. Ohio voters reject changes to the state constitution. The U.S. Supreme Court temporarily reinstates Biden's ghost gun regulation. The U.K. and Turkey announce a deal to tackle illegal migration. The White House plans to restrict some U.S. investments in China. Russia continues to claim gains in Ukraine's Kharkiv region. ABC leaves Elon Musk's X. A study finds Facebook's global spread hasn't caused psychological harm. And scientists say 4,000 daily steps are enough to boost health. In our top story, dozens are dead after a migrant ship capsizes off Tunisia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, and The Guardian. On Wednesday, Italian state media reported that 41 people are believed to have died after a boat capsized off the coast of Tunisia, with four survivors arriving in Italy after being rescued by a Maltese carrier. This news comes as another 16 people died in shipwrecks off the coast of Tunisia and Western Sahara earlier this week. The number of sub-Saharan migrants traveling through Tunisia to embark on sea crossings into Europe has increased significantly in recent years. In this latest deadly shipwreck, the survivors said they set off on Thursday morning from Sfax and quickly sank within a few hours of leaving shore. Italian authorities don't have official records, but based on the testimony of the survivors, the adults and three children that passed away were from Ivory Coast and Guinea. As of July 2023, Tunisia has surpassed Libya as the most popular starting point of African migrants seeking transport to Europe to escape conflict and poverty. During the first six months of the year, the number of dead or missing from these perilous journeys soared above 600. According to the UN's High Commission for Refugees, or UNHCR, Lampedusa, a southern Italian island, is serving as a main point of entry for migrants traveling across the Mediterranean Sea. In 2022, out of the 105,000 migrants to enter Italy, more than 46,000 entered through this location. Thank you, Eric. Here on the podcast, we'd like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. Eric just laid out the facts on our first story. I'm going to start off our first round of narrative spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Reuters. Italy acknowledges the perilous and often deadly mission that migrants are embarking on to secure a better life for themselves and their families. To reduce the dangers and the loss of life, Italy has requested EU funding for African nations to increase measures to reduce illegal immigration. Italy has sought a commitment from its EU partners to protect the lives of these migrants. The humanitarian crisis requires every nation to pitch in for education, training, jobs, food, and security for the poorest nations in the world. The establishment critical narrative comes from Human Rights Watch. While Italy claims to have the best interests of the migrants at heart, their legislative actions prove differently. The Italian government has been passing laws under the guise of emergency protective measures aimed at deterring migrants from arriving and criminalizing those that do. New laws will impede migrants' ability to seek protection and asylum and restrict their freedom of movement and their ability to work once inside of the country. Instead of providing a safe haven, 
Italy is seeking to make the lives of migrants just as bad, if not worse, than in their homelands. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. News out of China as consumer prices fall, raising deflation concerns. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Guardian, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, DW.com, and BBC News. On Wednesday, China's National Bureau of Statistics, or the MBS, announced that consumer prices fell in July for the first time in more than two years, highlighting a trend of deflation that affects household wealth and makes loan repayments more difficult. The NBS report shows that inflation fell 0.3% in July and comes a day after July figures showed that imports and exports fell sharply during the month. Manufacturers and retailers are now forced to cut prices to deal with a glut of supply and sluggish sales, as producer price inflation fell to 4.5%. China's economy has struggled to rebound since the end of the country's zero-COVID policies, with Beijing lowering interest rates and offering tax benefits to businesses in a bid to raise demand, while stopping short of major economic stimulus. Unlike other countries, China didn't disperse cash benefits to consumers during the pandemic, a policy which fueled consumer spending and inflation. As confidence in the economy remains low, coupled with a 21% youth unemployment rate, Chinese consumers are more likely to save than to spend their money. China's GDP is expected to fall below forecasted growth this year, hampered by a struggling real estate market, as deflation makes it more onerous to repay debt. Pivoting from exports, Beijing has offered more public housing and subsidies for electric cars to spur domestic consumption. The deflation could lower costs for Chinese exports to other countries, with the cost of potentially depressing foreign manufacturing. Economists predict Beijing will take stronger stimulus measures, such as tax and interest rate cuts. Adam, thank you so much for the facts of that story. Our first spin is an anti-China narrative coming from foreign affairs. China's powerhouse economy could finally be faltering, as its economic strength may be weaker than previously portrayed. After hedging their bets on a post-COVID boom that never materialized, Beijing will strain under a mountain of debt, lower demand, and a property crisis. The government has started to muzzle economists who don't tow the party line of economic success as China attempts to maintain their facade of unmitigated growth. And that's going to be followed with a pro-China narrative provided by Xinhao. China continues on a trajectory of growth as demand for services continues to rise as pandemic recovery continues apace even amid a faltering demand for goods. The 20-point plan unveiled by the government to shore up consumer demand is a testament to China's sober-minded thinking on the economy as economic growth continues unabated. Reports of China's economic demise are once again greatly exaggerated. The Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative for this story. They say that China's GDP will be $17.06 trillion in 2023. In our next story, Ohio voters reject a change to the state constitution. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Post, the Columbus Dispatch, USA Today, Associated Press, and New York Times. In a win for abortion rights groups ahead of a referendum this fall, 
Ohioans on Tuesday rejected a Republican-backed ballot measure known as Issue 1 that would raise the threshold needed to amend the state's constitution from a simple majority to 60%. With nearly all ballots counted, unofficial results showed that roughly 57% of the voters, more than 1.7 million people, voted to defeat the proposal, while nearly 43%, more than 1.3 million people, were in favor. This highly charged vote was heavily fueled by out-of-state donors who trumpeted the influence of special interests on Ohio politics. The full cost of the election won't be known until September. Abortion wasn't directly on the off-year summer election, but Republicans in the conservative-leaning state had pushed Issue 1 to try and undermine a public initiative to enshrine abortion rights into Ohio's constitution. If approved in November, this proposed amendment would give women legal control over reproduction decisions, upending Ohio's six-week abortion ban that took effect last year following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Thanks, Eric. As expected, we've got some political spins tied to this story, starting off with a Democratic narrative provided by Atlantic. While this victory far from indicates the GOP will lose its grip on power in Ohio, it does reveal that abortion remains a key issue for voters ahead of the 2024 presidential election. Abortion rights ballot measures have been undefeated even in red states since Roe v. Wade fell, a streak that suggests Republican-controlled state legislatures can be circumvented by direct democracy. And we counter that with Breitbart's Republican narrative. This vote doesn't show the success of direct democracy but rather how outside progressive groups can undermine the people's voice by funneling millions in dark money to attack state constitutions and advance their radical agenda. Given that sitting on the sidelines is a strategy doomed to fail, pro-life supporters must stand united and firm to protect the unborn. And we're going to wrap this story up with a nerd narrative that says there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the United States before 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Is it just me or is it, does it seem to go both ways? It's always like a low percentage that uh, um, there will be a constitutional amendment towards this either way. I think nobody wants to touch this really for real on either side. Well, I just ran to the store. I was trying to find a 10-foot pole and they were, they were, they were all sold out, Adam. I'm sorry. Especially buddy. in Ohio, right? I, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> The Supreme Court reinstates the ghost gun regulation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, PBS NewsHour, CBS, and Al Jazeera. The Supreme Court on Tuesday voted 5-4 to to permit President Joe Biden's administration to enforce a restriction on ghost guns, which are made from parts acquired in a purchase kit, while the administration appeals a lower court's decision. The administration last year expanded the federal definition of a firearm to include unfinished parts, requiring them to be licensed and feature a serial number. Manufacturers are also required to run background checks on buyers. U.S. District Court Judge Reed O'Connor in July ruled in favor of a group of gun owners, advocacy groups, and entities that make or sell affected products. O'Connor found that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives or the ATF, overstepped its authority. The administration's request for a pause in the lower court's ruling eventually landed at the Supreme Court. Conservative Justices John Roberts and Amy Coney Barrett joined the court's three liberal justices in allowing the administration to temporarily enforce 
the ghost gun rule. The administration's appeal will be heard in September. Adam, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first spin is coming from Vox, and it is a democratic narrative. Although the country won't be completely protected until the Biden administration wins its appeal, the streets are safer today because the Supreme Court is allowing the government to keep guns out of the wrong hands. O'Connor, a judge known for ruling with Republicans regardless of the case, ridiculously tried to claim gun parts aren't guns. But the Supreme Court saw through his partisan thinking. So hopefully the appeals courts will as well. And InfoWars is going to back that up with a Republican narrative. The Democrats' nonstop attack on the Second Amendment must end. Banning so-called ghost guns won't make the country safer, but what might reduce crime is reconsidering the progressive law enforcement policies that have turned U.S. cities into war zones. More law and order would do the trick better than taking away people's right to obtain guns. The Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 0.2% chance that the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution will be amended or repealed before 2025. News coming from the United Kingdom as they announce a deal with Turkey to tackle illegal migration. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, Al Jazeera, Sky News, Independent, and LBC. In an attempt to tackle illegal migration from Europe to Britain, the UK has announced the introduction of a deal with Turkey centered upon joint police operations against smuggler rings and boat part trading. Intelligence sharing between enforcement agencies will be increased as part of a, quote, center of excellence that will reportedly be established by the Turkish National Police. The government will assist in disrupting boat part sales, but the plans do not include provision on returning failed Turkish asylum seekers. The UK's Interior Ministry has claimed that the center will enrich existing expertise as both countries aim to disrupt criminal networks organizing illegal journeys. The UK will also increase the number of officers stationed in Turkey. UK Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick has stated that he is unable to disclose the amount transferred to Turkey under the agreement, revealing that only some funding was given and that the project was not primarily about money. The deal comes after Jenrick visited Turkey, specifically the Turkish-Bulgarian border checkpoint at Kapakuli last month. The Home Office has estimated that hundreds of small boats and boat parts are transported through Europe each year for the purpose of facilitating illegal crossings to the UK. The deal is set to be further discussed at the UK-Turkey Migration Dialogue meeting, scheduled to take place this autumn in London. The announcement also comes in the same week migrants first boarded the UK government's controversial Bibby Stockholm barge off the coast of Dorset. All right, Eric, we've got a right narrative provided by The Telegraph. While the British left believes the UK should be an international safe haven for migrants and the distribution of global welfare, the reality is that illegal migration fuels labor exploitation, destroys cultural unity, and poses a threat to civil society. The UK must impose greater punishment for illegal entrance to the country and create a hostile environment for those who benefit from people smuggling and evading the law. The left narrative comes from The Guardian. By the time the government's ineptitude concerning immigration once again sets upon the British people, it is likely the Conservatives will no longer be in office. There is no evidence that imposing harsh restrictions on illegal arrivals discourages refugees from fleeing unimaginable domestic conditions. The government possesses no real policies outside of the intellectually spacious facade that the Tories 
can repel all those deemed as undesirable invaders. And the Nerds of Metaculous have an opinion on this story. They think that there's a 77% chance that Sir Keir Starter will form the first government after the next UK election. The White House is planning new Chinese investment restrictions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, CBS, CNN, Reuters, and Yahoo News. On Wednesday, the Biden administration planned to announce an executive order restricting U.S. investment in some of China's high-tech industries, including quantum computing, artificial intelligence, and advanced semiconductors. The restrictions, aimed at preventing U.S. capital and intelligence from aiding in China's military modernization and the alleged undermining of U.S. national security, come amid rising tensions between the world's largest economies. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen discussed these restrictions during meetings with her Chinese counterparts last month. The order will require specific investments to be reported to the government and will ban certain transactions. It will apply only to future investments and will not take effect until 2024. Previously, the administration imposed export controls to block China's access to chip-making tools that could benefit the Chinese military. Those were the facts, and we begin our round of spins with an anti-China narrative coming from Reuters. It's about time the U.S. realized the threat China poses and acted to prevent it from obtaining advanced technology that's crucial to building up a modern military. This is a national security risk the U.S. must snuff out. And of course, that's going to be followed with a pro-China narrative provided by CGTN. The U.S. is only hurting itself and the rest of the global economy by issuing an order that will exacerbate the supply chain crisis. Meanwhile, China will continue to develop semiconductors and other equipment that will make its military as advanced as it wants to be. It's a lose-lose for the U.S. Eric, how is this going to affect your uh, Chinese investments? Do you have products being manufactured in China? Uh, No, but I think it will impact my uh, weekly pickleball sessions. Oh, how so? Well, I mean, most of the equipment I use is made in China. Oh, man. You better stock up on your pickleball rattles and and balls. I I know, right? I've watched you play pickleball. You're pretty intense. Well, yeah. You go through at least three paddles a game, right? At least, least, yeah. And that's just just when I throw fits. Moving from China to Russia as they continue to claim gains in the Kharkiv region. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, Euractive, The Guardian, and Ukraine Forum. Russia has claimed it's making additional gains in the northeastern Ukrainian region of Kharkiv this week, territory whose control has already traded hands multiple times throughout the 17-month-old war. Russia took control of vast swaths of the region following the outset of the conflict, but failed to reach Kharkiv city. In September, Ukrainian forces launched a surprise counteroffensive and took back most of the territory held by Russia there in lightning speed. Earlier in the week, as Ukraine waged a renewed counteroffensive effort, namely in the regions of Donetsk and Zaporizhia, Russia has sought to claw back territory in Kharkiv. A Russian Defense Ministry statement on Monday claimed to have advanced 1.9 miles or 3 kilometers along a front that's 6.8 miles or 11 kilometers wide in the region. Late on Tuesday, Vitaly Ganchev, Russia's head of the military administration in Kharkiv, claimed that additional advances were made in the past week, saying in recent days five settlements have been added to the territories of Kharkiv region that are under our control. 
On Wednesday, Ukrainian officials announced that a program of mandatory evacuation of children was now underway in a number of areas of the Kharkiv region. Irina Vereshchuk, a Ukrainian minister, said, We must do everything to ensure that civilians do not suffer. Meanwhile, Hanna Maliar, Ukraine's deputy defense minister, acknowledged that fighting was intensifying in the Kharkiv region, namely near the city of Kupiansk. She said, quote, I can assure you that we are also taking appropriate measures to resist the enemy and prevent them from advancing along the offensive line. Thanks for the update on the situation in Ukraine, Eric. We've got a pro-Russian narrative to follow that up provided by TASS. As Ukraine continues to expend vast resources on its counteroffensive, it has left the Kharkiv region exposed, and Russian forces are now making vast advances there. They have taken five settlements in the past few days. The pro-Ukraine narrative comes from Ukraine Forum. The intensity of fighting is heating up in the Kharkiv region. However, Ukrainian forces continue to take actions to stabilize and repel the Russian assault. Meanwhile, Ukraine continues to enjoy success in the southern regions. And we're going to finish with a nerd narrative that says there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory. Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea as independent before 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Basically, not a chance. <laughs> Is that what your bet's on right there, the not a chance? I'd like a like a, a figurative narrative. There's not a chance in hell that Ukraine will officially recognize <laughs> think, a former Ukrainian territory. should start doing that. It'd be a little more entertaining. Figurative mm-hmm. narratives. ABC is closing most of its X accounts. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, NNN, Guardian, and The Desk. David Anderson, managing director of ABC, has announced all but four of the network's accounts on X, formerly Twitter, will be shut down because of alleged toxic interactions endured on the platform. Anderson said that aside from ABC News, ABC Sport, ABC Chinese, and ABC Australia, all accounts will be discontinued. ABC claims Elon Musk's management exacerbated negative interactions, which led to the company to close three accounts, Insiders, News Breakfast, and ABC Politics, in a trial run. Anderson called the results positive. ABC, according to Anderson, gets most of its social media engagement through YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. ABC is the third largest public service broadcaster, joining NPR and PBS to leave X. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. We begin our round of spins with Narrative A coming from Daily Mail. Since Elon Musk bought the platform, X has become more toxic, and there's no other way to protect employees at ABC or any media entity other than to leave it at least temporarily. If Twitter doesn't improve its content moderation, It'll continue to grow as a cesspool and be unusable to legitimate media and right-minded citizens. And there's also a Narrative B provided by Newsweek. ABC, like other media outlets and many public figures, is overreacting. Data shows hate speech on X has declined since Musk's ownership began. The platform under Musk has become a bastion of free speech and has eliminated political censorship. It's only going to get better. 
Eric, you still got your uh, X account I, going? No, I don't have. I don't. Oh, Do you, you? You didn't. Need, did you have a Twitter account though to begin with? No, I didn't. I didn't have one to begin with. Oh well, then that I doesn't didn't. count. Well, well, you, you can't. You can't fit into my survey. Well, hold on. Let well, me, wait a minute. Now let me check. Ah, hold on. Um, let me check you I off. I could have swore that I met all the criteria for that. Eric re- that. is a no. Okay. I didn't. No, no, moving on. You you do not earn the $20. I'm sorry. Well, it, you clarified it just a few minutes ago and it enlightened me. You said it was a bastard of free speech. That was exactly what I said. According to a recent study, the global spread of Facebook is not linked to psychological harm. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Euronews, BBC News, and Times. A study conducted by the Oxford Internet Institute, or OII, found no evidence that Facebook's spread throughout the world was consistently linked to negative well-being. Researchers studied nearly 1 million people across 72 countries between 2008 and 2019. The research, which didn't study other meta-owned apps such as Instagram, divided users into two age groups, 13 to 34 and 35+. plus though it didn't analyze data for young people as a separate group. It also didn't examine the risks presented by certain types of content, such as material promoting self-harm. The researchers, Professor Andrew Probilski and co-author Matty Voire, analyzed three indicators of well-being, life satisfaction, negative, and positive psychological experiences. While they found no general link to negative well-being, they did find that females were slightly more impacted than males. Despite previous research to the contrary, the study found small but significant evidence that the spread of Facebook actually led to an improvement in well-being. They correlated Facebook's rise with data from the Global Gallup survey and another data set that reflects anxiety, depression, and self-harm. Meta, which provided the internal data, said it hoped the first-of-a-kind study will lead to productive conversations with policymakers, parents, and academics. Both researchers are independent of the company, and the study wasn't funded by Meta. Meanwhile, Facebook whistleblower Francis Hagen argued that the 13 to 34 age group wasn't helpful in assessing the impact on children, adding that its tilt toward the first world hides a lot of the impact because Facebook use in the global south was not heavy or based on a text-based version. All right, Eric, NPR Online News is going to start the spins with a narrative A the popular belief that social media is a detriment to society and our well-being doesn't add up when compared to the data. Previous studies have already shown that reports on negative body image and suicidal thoughts are blown out of proportion, while anti-social media activists like to compare big tech to big tobacco. Another thing they're missing is that social media actually has positive effects alongside their statistically insignificant negative consequences. TechCo gives us Narrative B. While the size of this study should be appreciated and used for further research, it doesn't really provide a cause and effect result. The researchers even acknowledged that they didn't show the typical 97.5 credibility threshold in all cases, as well as that young people today don't even use Facebook. Concerns surrounding social media's impact on mental health are still legitimate, so we shouldn't let this correlative study sway our thinking. Our final story today is a study that says that 4,000 daily steps is enough to lower the risk of death. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, Eureka Alert, Guardian, BBC News, NBC, and CNN. According to a study published Tuesday in the European Journal of Preventative Cardiology, 
Walking just 4,000 steps a day could reduce the risk of dying prematurely from any cause. A team of researchers from the Medical University of Lodz in Poland and John Hopkins University School of Medicine in the U.S. drew in data from 17 previous studies involving 226,889 patients. The meta-analysis found that walking 3,967 steps a day could reduce a person's risk of early death, and walking just 2,337 could lower the risk of dying from cardiovascular diseases. The study discovered that every 1,000 additional steps beyond the 4,000 reduced the risk of dying early by 15% up to 20,000 steps, adding the walking benefits applied to all genders, ages, and regions. Additionally, the study revealed that taking between 7,000 and 13,000 steps per day lowered the overall risk of death by 49% for people under 60. For people 60 and older, taking 6,000 to 10,000 steps daily lowered the risk by 42%. Concluding that anything below 5,000 steps a day is considered a sedentary lifestyle. The researchers suggested that every increase of steps by 500 to 1,000 steps a day may be associated with significant mortality reductions. Adam, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from the sun. Millions of fitness tracking devices have been sold worldwide as lifestyle companions, reminding health-conscious people that taking 10,000 steps per day is essential to reap health benefits. However, this study may come as a breath of relief for millions of people for whom 10,000 steps can feel far-fetched and defeating. Trying to walk about 4,000 steps a day consistently can improve their health, and any slight increase in step counts every day will likely enhance their longevity. There's also a narrative B provided by Express. This is an observational study, which is why its suggestions need to be confirmed in larger groups of people to prove that walking less than 4,000 steps per day could cause a reduction in the risk of death. Moreover, the impact of socioeconomic status and the methods for counting steps differed in all the studies, including in the meta-analysis. Instead of focusing solely on step counts, lifestyle changes could also be emphasized in reducing cardiovascular risk and prolonging lives. We have our final nerd narrative of today's podcast. It comes from the Metaculous Prediction community, and they say there's a 50% chance that at least 70% of Americans will be obese or overweight in 2030. Thanks for joining us for the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, August 10th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. You can download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play and find out more information about Improve the News at improvethenews.org. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.